Today we're going to be talking about Matthew 5, 17 through 20, so of course the place I'm going to start is Matthew 23. Um, <laughs> the reason I'm going here is this is an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and he talks about the Pharisees in our passage that we're going to study, and he really lays out why he's so upset at the Pharisees. And I just want you to keep that in mind. So if you have your text open to Matthew 5, and then just as you're looking at Matthew 5, listen to these things about the Pharisees. So we're in Matthew chapter 5 already in this book. We've seen John interact with the Pharisees. And was that a good interaction? Now, what did John call the Pharisees? Anybody know? Vipers, a brood of vipers, right? He also called them chaff that God was going to burn. Uh, and he said that they were trees not bearing fruit. As soon as they come out to hear him speak, he says, who told you to come? <laughs> so this is our first interaction with the Pharisees. That chapter is also interesting because it's John's first interaction with Jesus. And there's some really interesting things, including... Jesus saying, I, I'm going to get baptized by you too. Anybody know? To fulfill all righteousness. Which is a phrase I want you to hold on to because that's actually what Matthew 5 is about. Fulfilling the law. But here we are with Jesus and the Pharisees. He's encountered them in various places throughout his ministry. Said some okay things about them. And he said some not okay things about them. He took them to task for making the Sabbath more important than man. And reminded them, no, Sabbath is actually not made for man. Man is, or, yeah, man is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath is for man. Right? And we taught about that. Sabbath was a gift from God. And he wanted them to enjoy it. He talks about how the Pharisees don't understand Hosea... Let's see, Hosea, I got to find it. 6.6, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Twice, Jesus says of the Pharisees, if you understood this, you would be acting differently. Then he gets to healing. They say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? His response, not literally, but his response is, is it lawful not to heal on the Sabbath? Or is that actually what the law says you should be doing? Then they start talking about Jesus and saying, he's doing what he's doing, casting out demons by the power of demons. <laughs> so already we're seeing there's a, a love-hate relationship going. right? But then in uh, Matthew 12... Jesus starts echoing some of the things that John says. He says that the Pharisees are trees that are not bearing fruit or are actually bearing bad fruit. And then later in that chapter, he calls them again, brood of vipers. In Matthew 15, he makes a big deal about how they're focusing on their commandments which have put a fence around the law. So this is something I want you guys to really get. God created the law. Israel didn't follow the law. They get exiled. When they return from exile, 
they had a real heart to not go into exile again. <laughs> Strange. And so what they came up with is, well, what can we do to prevent us from breaking the law? So they created what we call a fence around the law. So the law says, keep the Sabbath holy and don't do any work on it. The Pharisees say, this is exactly how many steps you can take before you're doing too much work on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't call them to task for saying how many steps you could take. He said, you make that as important as the law itself. So you're saying, not only do you have to follow this law that God made, but now you have to follow this law that we made. And, and to follow the original law, you have to follow our law. And that's what he didn't like. Because he said, essentially, this law that God made is already hard. And now you're making it harder. When we go further through different ones, the, the one word that Jesus uses about the Pharisees the most is, any guesses? Hypocrite. He takes them to task so, so much for being a hypocrite. So I wanted to give a definition. A hypocrite. Now I have to find it. <laughs> Hypocrisy, according to Wikipedia, the all-knowing internet. Um, anyway, Hypocrisy refers to advocating behaviors that one does not practice. However, it can also refer to other forms of pretense, such as engaging in pious or moral behaviors out of a desire for praise, rather than out of genuinely pious or moral motivations. Now this, I think, is the part of hypocrisy that he hates the most. He cannot stand this. And in Matthew 23, which is where I said we were going to go and we finally get there, um, he just lays into the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. Anyone, anyone want to guess in this chapter, how many times does he call them hypocrites? What did you say? Seven. Seven. Good number. Try again. Eight. Good. Keep going. Twelve. A little too high. Ten different verses. Now, he doesn't only call them hypocrites. He also calls them blind fools. How many times do we think he does that? Three. Three? Good guess. Wrong. One. Five times. So in this one chapter, he's called them hypocrites ten times, and he's called them blind or foolish guides five times, getting the impression he's not very happy with them. Later in uh, 23, this is interesting, he says, they seek approval from men, and they're more concerned with appearance. He takes them to task for wanting the best place of honor at a feast. He takes them to task for their long tassels or different things on their outfit to say, hey, look at us, look how good and holy we are. But he also takes them to task because he says, you make these incredible burdens 
and you do nothing to help people bear them. Here's one though, Matthew 23 verse 15. This is one of the ones that should really get us thinking. He calls them sons of Gehenna or sons of what we would know as hell. He is saying right here, you're not acting like the sons of God. You're acting like the sons of the devil because you're being a hypocrite. <laughs> Later on, he even calls them whitewashed tombs. Says you look really good on the outside, but inside you're filled with, let's see, a plundering spirit, intemperance, filled with bones of the dead, uncleanness, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. Okay? Now, interesting, Ezekiel actually used the term whitewashed tombs first, and he was saying it of the, strangely enough, priests of his time. Um, but it's this idea that you look good on the outside, but inside you're filled with all this crap. So, the definition of hypocrisy that we gave earlier talked about pretense, engaging in behavior so you would look good. I took a bunch of verses from, verse, uh, from chapter 23. This is what Jesus says of the Pharisees. They say, but do not do. Well, they're right there. That's number one on hypocrisy. Say, but do not do. They tie up heavy burdensome loads, but do not lift a finger to move them. All their deeds are done for men to see. They love the places of honor at banquets and the title rabbi. They are the textbook definition of psychological, spiritual hypocrisy. And he hates it. And here's why I think he hates it so much. Because Jesus loves the law. But really he loves the law because the law was meant for the people. He loves the people and the law was meant for the good of the people. So now we come to Matthew 5, 7 through 20. The first thing I want you to hear is the law matters to Jesus. It matters. He says right at the very beginning, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And this is a word I want us to focus on. Fulfill. When Bible translators go from the Greek to whatever language, they always have a range of meanings that they're picking from. Because ancient Greek isn't the same as contemporary English or whatever language. So they're picking from a range of words. And I wanted to share some of the range for fulfill because I want you to get the idea that this is a big deal. This isn't just Jesus saying, yeah, the law is okay. Okay? To fulfill. One definition, to make full, fill up, fill to the fullness. To cause, to abound. That's a nice one to render full or complete, to consummate. 
And underconsummate, it means to make complete in every particular or to render perfect. Now you're starting to see Jesus is saying, when I am here to fulfill the law, this isn't just a little thing. This is a big deal. Another definition, to carry through to the end, to accomplish, carry out, or bring to realization. I found this quote, and I just, I love this. It says that to fulfill is to cause God's will as made known in the law to be obeyed as it should be and God's promises given through the prophets to receive fulfillment. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, I have come to fulfill the law. I've come to do all these things for the law. And by the way, the law is also pointing to me as its fulfillment. And earlier in Matthew, we mentioned that he was interacting with John, Jesus, and he said, I need to be baptized by you too to fulfill all righteousness. That's always been a phrase that I was, even with my seminary training, I'm like, what does that mean? But now we're seeing to fulfill Here he's saying, this is what it is. I am living to fulfill God's word. I am living to do what God wants done. And that's all that matters to me. So he he says that about fulfilling all righteousness. He lived at this time in the city of Capernaum, which is called the city of Nahum. Anybody know who Nahum is? He's this really cool minor prophet that I couldn't tell you what's in his book because I don't remember it at the moment. Um, It's short. It's like one chapter. And we know he's a minor prophet. We know very little about him because we have very little. But Jesus was living in Capernaum and the text says he was living in Capernaum to do what? To fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah that said he would live in Capernaum. (laughs) So Jesus understands this idea of fulfill. And it's very important to him. So, first thing, he says the law matters. Second verse, so verse uh, 18. By the way, the law really, really matters. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single jot or tittle of the law will pass away until the law's every intention is completed. Or, here's this word again, Fulfilled. No part of the law will disappear until it does everything God wants it to do. You heard me say jot and tittle. Does anybody know what jot and tittle means? The dot on the eye. Close. It's, it's related. It's actually from the Hebrew letter yod, which is the tiniest letter in Hebrew. It looks like an apostrophe. A tittle is a little swirl on the top of a Hebrew letter to indicate a vowel or whatever. So Jesus is saying we're taking the smallest letter and the smallest little flourish and we're saying not even one of those is going to pass away until God does exactly what he wants to do through the law and with the law. And again, Jesus isn't the first to say this. Isaiah In Isaiah 55, verse 10 through 11, 
He says, as the rains come down and the snow from the sky and does not return there but waters the earth and makes it grow and bud and gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void. It will accomplish that which I please and it will prosper in what I have sent it to do. This is... God saying this about his word, but of course, we have to say the law is part of his word. He's saying nothing is going to pass away. So Jesus says the law matters. I'm not going to abolish but fulfill. He says it really matters and all of it matters. And, and then he reiterates. He's like, if, in case you're missing, all of the law matters. He says, therefore, whoever puts off even the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be least in the kingdom of heaven, but he who teaches and practices them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And what I love, again, Jesus isn't the first to say this. In Deuteronomy, do not add or subtract a thing to what I am commanding you. This is Deuteronomy 4, verse Two, do not add a thing or subtract from what I am commanding. Observe all the commands of the Lord your God. And then later in the New Testament, James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of the whole law. One of the scholars, Jameson Fawcett Brown, said it this way, when you break the law, you break the whole law, even if you don't break the whole of the law, because you offend against love, which is the fulfillment of the law. This is something I really want you to hold on to. Love is the fulfillment of the law. When we get a little further, we're going to see that Jesus understands love as meeting every single requirement of the law and enabling you to if you are loving God and loving others at all times to what? Follow the law. If you are loving someone are you going to steal from them? If you are loving someone are you going to lie to them or about them? If you are loving someone are you going to wish you had their spouse? Right? Just think about the Ten Commandments. If we had a community in which the Ten Commandments were not only revered and honored, but actually lived out. No theft. No lying. Nobody would commit adultery. You'd honor your parents. You'd worship God. You'd understand the Sabbath. Do we have that? So remember that too. Because we're going to talk about the purpose of the law. And one of the purposes has to be we don't, we don't meet it. It shows us how far away from meeting it we are. So Jesus says the law matters. He reminds us it really matters. He reminds us all of it matters. And then he says, here's what you need to catch. And this is why I bring in the Pharisees. He says, it needs to matter to you more than the people who spend their lives and time studying it. He says in the last verse, I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter 
the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 23, where we were, he starts his diatribe against the Pharisees by saying something interesting. He says, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, which means they are, at this time, God's chosen vessels of instruction and teaching. They have an authority because of where they sit and because of their studying the law. He says, therefore, you should pay attention to what they tell you to do, and you should do it. So he isn't even saying the things they're telling you to do are wrong. He's saying you should do it. But then he says this really important thing. He says, but don't do what they do, because they do not practice what they preach. So all of that stuff that he said about the Pharisees, and here he's saying you have to do better than they're doing. So by now you're thinking, great, (laughs) this is really hard. And he just made it 10 times harder because I can't study the law all day. I don't get to sit around and read it and figure out what it means. But then he goes into other stuff. And this is where I feel like we need to understand. What is the purpose of the law? Simple question, not a simple answer. Any thoughts? Keep us in honor God. Tutor, yep, that's the language Paul uses in his letters. Teacher, okay. So we know what sin is. All of these are kind of part of it. If you do a quick search on Google, in some places the first thing you'll say, sin. It's about sin. It's about what is and isn't right. I want to propose a purpose for the law. This is based on history, based on study. Yes. Pointing to Jesus is an excellent thing in the law. Of course, we've already been talking about fulfilling the law. Right? The law, I believe, is to show the character or nature of God and what should be ours and how he wants us to live in light of that. Okay? That's my definition but I think it can be supported by a lot of things. Shows us who God is and how he wants us to live. Jeff Niehaus is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He has a series of books he wrote on righteousness. Really, really interesting stuff if you're philosophical and can speak Hebrew, which... um, He says that righteousness entails the fundamental idea of conformity to God's doing and being. I feel like that kind of jives. This is, the law is designed to help us to conform to God's being and doing. Now, when you think about that and you say, what is the Lord's being? I always go to Exodus 34. He gives his name. The Lord's self-revealed name that he gives to the people that he wants them to call him by is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousandth generation and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. 
This is the essence of God, right here. Slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving wickedness and sin, maintaining love to the thousandth generation. So, the law is supposed to help us understand the Lord, understand his love. Niehaus says this, and it's a longer quote, so I'll, I'll try and read it well. The Lord is true to himself, or righteous. As such, he works to make others true to himself, the law, okay? Being true to the Lord is the definition of righteousness as a moral or ethical quality that leads to moral and ethical behavior, So the more you understand the Lord's character, the more you can exhibit that character in how you live your life. Only by such being and doing, which parallel God's being and doing, can a person make his way straight. Because the Lord is righteous and behaves righteously, all his ways and the ways he makes or requires are also righteous and straight. So that's what Niehaus says. The reason I want to bring that up is in the beginning, the very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He speaks his word and creation obeys his word and does everything he said. And at the end of creation, God looks at creation. This is in Genesis uh, 131. God looks at creation and what does he say of creation? It's very good. Now, very is actually not quite enough. The text is actually urging you for a bigger understanding. Very is the English word we throw in, but if you want to make it funny, it's very, 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 very good. Right? But really, it's everything is as good as it is possible for it to be. So when he created, it was perfect. And this is where the Hebrew idea of peace comes from. The the best definition I ever heard of peace is everything as it should be. So right here, at one point in human history, God sits back and he says, this creation is everything everything it should be. How long did it last? (laughs) We don't exactly know, but it's one chapter, yeah. Literally, turn the page. But here's why I'm pointing out. Everything was in shalom, right? Everything was perfect in its kind so that every creature might reach the goal appointed by the creator and accomplish the purpose of its existence. That's a... One of the commentaries said that, and I was just like, that's so perfect, that's peace. But then the fall. The fall comes and we break the peace, we disturb the peace. So this perfect world, this perfect universe even, is now imperfect and broken and messed up and filled with all kinds of pain and suffering. And so what God has been doing ever since the fall falls under what we would call judgment and justice. And the best way to understand those words in this context is God saying, 
there was perfection, you messed it up, and now I'm working to restore that perfection. So you took my Zen garden and you stomped all over it and you made it look awful. And I'm just raking it out and I'm getting it back to what it's supposed to be. That's everything he's doing after the fall. Judgment and justice. Usually we're thinking judgment is a negative thing. We're thinking punishment. And whatever punishment is coming, right? But he's saying judgment and justice are linked to this. And this is where I think Nehaus has something really interesting to say. Righteousness is conformity to God's being and doing. Justice will return to or conform to that standard. If the law is about judgment and justice, it's going to the same place. It's going toward a fulfillment, which is the restoration of everything. Now, when I asked about the law... Somebody said it was designed to show us how we fail, right? Because if you look at this good and perfect law, this law that is, as Deuteronomy says, wisdom and understanding, or is righteousness, or is, I love this one, Deuteronomy 6.24, this law is always for your good and life. Is that what you think of when you think of the law? Your good and life? God does. That's why he made it. But the other part of the law that we have to see, and especially in the light of Jesus, it's like a mirror. You hold it up, it shows you exactly how you are. Are you perfect? No. (laughs) Okay? The law shows us how far we are from living it out. And that's... It's not trying to be the taskmaster or the judge. It simply is. The law is, we hold it up to ourselves and we're like, whoops, (laughs) not meeting that one. Nope, not meeting that one. Nope. But there's some real hope. And I think we need to remember this. There's real hope. If Jesus is the fulfillment, what did Jesus do? He dies on the cross to what? Pay the price we owe for our breaking the law. So the law shows us how we've messed up. Everybody knows these ones. Romans 3, Paul seems very negative, and maybe is, but he's an optimistic pessimist. But he says in Romans 3, 10 through 11, there is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. This is what Paul says. Now he's actually quoting two different Psalms in this one verse that say the same thing. There is no one righteous. Okay, but this is, everyone knows this one too. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul makes it clear. Everybody's missed the mark. Everybody has missed the mark. I, yeah. So but, when we think about the Old Testament law, there are three parts. There's the moral law, there's the judgment law, and the ceremonial law. Okay. The moral law tells us what we should or shouldn't do. And I just want you to, so the ceremonial is, okay, now that you've broken the moral law, here's what you do. And the judgment says, and this is why you deserve it, and, right? So those three parts of the law. But I wanted to say that because this, I found this in a commentary, and I just, this, 
encapsulates it so well. The moral law shows us what we ought to do, and so we learn our inability to do it. Ceremonial law, through sacrifices, we seek to answer for not having done the moral law. But outward purifying doesn't cleanse our soul. We need an infinitely better sacrifice, the antitype of all the sacrifices. When we are delivered to the judicial law, we see how awful is the doom we deserve. Thus the whole law, moral, ceremonial, judgmental, leads us to Christ in whom we find righteousness and peace. And here is where I think we hit the real root. The very first verse, Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law. But what does that mean for him? Later in his ministry, he's asked, teacher, what are the most important commandments? He says, the first and most important commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. It is all over the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy, it's in Joshua, it's all over. This is nothing new. And the Pharisees agree, that's a great law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And honestly, if we follow just that one law, all of the others would kind of fall into place. And that's actually what Jesus says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart is the first, the second is love your neighbor as yourself. You know where that first comes up? Anybody remember? I, I said it before. Leviticus. The first, the first time we are told to love our neighbors as ourselves is in Leviticus. But then Jesus says this interesting thing. He says these two commandments, they are the foundation and the thing that everything else in the law hangs on. My friend Mark Fee likes to say 613 commands in the Old Testament, right? If they all hang on loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor, he's saying all 613 commands, and I agree, are ways you are loving or aren't loving God and others. The reason I say that is when we get to the other authors in the New Testament, when we get to Paul especially, Paul makes this astounding statement in Romans 13. He says, the one who loves fulfills the law. And then he says, in case you don't quite get that, a couple verses later, he says, love does not harm or injure its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the way to do the law. When I was growing up, law and love were not close. And even now, people struggle to reconcile. Here's the Old Testament God of judgment and anger and wrath, and here's the nice... Happy Jesus, who's calling people tombs and broods of vipers. And And so we've always had this dichotomy that we can't quite bring together. 
How does law and love work together? Paul says law and love works together because if you really love God and others, you will not break any of the law's commands. And in fact, you will follow all of the commands that we're urged to follow in terms of generosity, caring for the poor, caring for the widows and the orphans, sharing what you have, being a light to the nations. If you're doing the love, you're doing all of these things. And this is what I think is so amazing. Paul says this about love and links it to Jesus because Jesus says the law is loving God and loving others, right? Mark, like this. Loving God, loving others. That's the law. That's the whole law. And Jesus seems to be saying, the only thing you now have to worry about, because I've taken the penalty, I've taken the cost that you owe, you look at the judgment law, and you say, yes, I deserve death. I've taken that away. That's not in the equation anymore. All that matters is, are you Loving. Are you loving me? And are you loving others? But then it's really interesting because Jesus talks about how to do that, you have to be loved by him first. <laughs> and there's a ministry all about it. Anybody has questions, there's three people who would love to talk to you. Jesus says... In John 13, I'm giving you a new command to love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He loved us to the end. And this is, he himself says later in John, this is my commandment that you love one another. Are we we getting this? This is not a one-time thing. This is all over. He says, this is my commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. And then this is what I love, because Paul taps into this. In Romans 5.8, a lot of people have heard this one. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners or unrighteous, Christ died for us. So Christ says the greatest love of all is to die for your friends. Romans says the greatest love of all is to die for your enemy. So even when you were in that place where you hated God, where you were not following the law, where you didn't want to follow the law, he said, I don't care, I love you anyway. And I'm going to pay this price so that this no longer affects you. Because I want you to get to this, which is to be loved by me and to love others in response. And in case you think this is just me, (laughs) several authors, especially Paul, say, what is the response to God's actions? We should. Hmm? Can't hear you. Love others, right? In Ephesians 4, verses 32 through 5, verse 2, Paul says, Be kind and compassionate toward one another, 
Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Imitators of God. The Greek word is actually the word for uh, mimic. Anybody remember a mimeograph machine? I'm going to date myself with this one. You would write your stuff on it, and then you'd put it on the cylinder and turn it around, and you could make copies. And they would be exact. They were hard to read and ugly and... But they would have the same stuff. This is what the Greek word is. You're mimicking God. You're taking God and you're doing exactly what he did. Okay? You're looking at him, the way he behaves, his being and his doing. Conformity to God's being and doing is to imitate him. So be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Beloved friends, this is from Romans 12, 1 to 2. What should our proper response to God's marvelous mercies be? To surrender yourselves to God, to be his sacred living sacrifices, live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart, this becomes your genuine expression of worship. In case you're wondering, that's from the Passion. It's going to sound a little different. But I feel like it just caught it. The only response, the only response when you see the price that he paid for you, the only response when you see that he is fulfilling the law by loving you and you and you, the only response that makes any sense at all is to say, God, Take everything and help me to do that to others. That's the only worship that really makes sense anymore. It's the only response that he wants, and it's the only one that makes sense. Romans 13, 8. Don't owe anything to anyone except your outstanding debt to continually love one another. For the one who learns to love has fulfilled every requirement of the law. So we see in the law God's awesome character. We see the traits we're supposed to have and we see the traits we don't have. And we see our need for a savior. A savior who when we still were opposed to him still loved us. And the only response he wants is a heart that says, thank you, can I do that for others? Can you show me the way to do that for others? I want to end this with an old hymn. You know, hymns are taboo, but not for Brian Ocock. He loves hymns. This is called, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? It was by a young man named Isaac Watts. He grew up in the Anglican church of his time, and he thought that the worship music was incredibly slow and boring. So his father said, hey, write your own music. And so he did. Isaac Watts actually ended up writing like 300 hymns. Um, so... Encouragement from parents, amen. Um, alas, 
And did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears and dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of tears can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, for it is all I can do. This is what God is saying. This is what he's asking of you right now. In response to this, you see the amazing things I've done. You see the depth of depravity that you're capable of according to the law. You see all that, and I say, I died. I wiped that out because I love you. I love you dearly, passionately, fervently. I love you. I said this law that was for your good, you didn't meet it, so I'm going to meet it for you. And all he wants you to do in response is say, here I am. What did Isaiah say? He's in the temple and he sees the glory of God in the robe filling his temple and he says, God, I will go. I will go. All I can do in response to that love, that amazing love that fulfills the law is say, I'm yours. I want to love. I want to love every person. I want to love them as you love them. I want to love them even when they're hurting me. Even when they're my enemy. I want to love them because that's the love that you have for me. The love that says, I'm never, ever going to leave you. Jesus says in the end of the gospel, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. And so God says, respond. Give me yourself. Because that's all I want. I'm not asking for money, although I hope you will give some money. I'm not asking for a mission trip right now, but maybe you're going to go on a mission trip. But I'm just asking for you, for your heart that says, God, all I have is me, and all I have is yours. So, Father, here we are. In view of your great mercies, and we lay down ourselves, we ask, Father, that you would meet us in our humility and that you would meet us in this place and that you would take this offering and that you would make something beautiful out of it and that you would use it for your glory and that you would use it to spread your kingdom we just pray that every heart here today would bow before you in love Albert Einstein said that love is a far better teacher than duty I don't want you to bow before God in duty I want you to bow before God in Relief in saying, how much does he love me? How much does he care? I'm bowing before God because he loves me.
and gave himself for me. He took the place on that cross that I deserved because he loved me. And every heart, every heart, every person needs to be saying, he loved me. Not he loved people. He does. He loves me. I want you to hear it. I love you, says God. I love you. And if you ever doubt it, look at the cross. I love you.